Chapter 8 of The Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Now, this is fighting. When Cowperwood, after failing in his overture to the three city gas companies, confided to Addison his plan of organizing rival companies in the suburbs, the banker glared at him appreciatively. You're a smart one, he finally exclaimed. You'll do. I back you to win. He went on to advise Cowperwood that he would need the assistance of some of the strong men on the various village councils. They're all as crooked as eel's teeth, he went on, but there are one or two that are more crooked than others, and safe bellwethers. Have you got a lawyer? I haven't picked one yet, but I will. I'm looking around for the right man now. Well, of course, I needn't tell you how important that is. There is one man, old General Van Sickle, who has had considerable training in these matters. He's fairly reliable. The entrance of General Judson P. Van Sickle threw, at the very outset, a suggestive light on the whole situation. The old soldier, over fifty, had been a general of division during the Civil War, and had got his real start in life by filing false titles to property in southern Illinois, and then bringing suits to substantiate his fraudulent claims before friendly associates. He was now a prosperous go-between, requiring heavy retainers, and yet not over-prosperous. There was only one kind of business that came to the general, this kind, and one instinctively compared him to that decoy sheep at the stockyards that had been trained to go forth in nervous, frightened flocks of its fellow sheep, balking at being driven into the slaughtering pens, and lead them peacefully into the shambles, knowing enough always to make his own way quietly to the rear during the onward progress, and thus escape. A dusty old lawyer, this, with heaven knows what welter of altered wills, broken promises, suborned juries, influenced judges, bribed councilmen and legislators, double-intentioned agreements and contracts, and a whole world of shifty legal calculations, and false pretenses floating around in his brain. Among the politicians, judges, and lawyers generally, by reason of past useful service, he was supposed to have some powerful connections. He liked to be called into any case largely because it meant something to do, and kept him from being bored. When compelled to keep an appointment in winter, he would slip on an old great coat, a gray twill, that he had worn until it was shabby then taking down a soft felt hat, twisted and pulled out of shape by use, he would pull it low over his dull gray eyes and amble forth. In summer, his clothes looked as crinkled as though he had slept in them for weeks. He smoked. In case of countenance, he was not wholly unlike General Grant, with a short gray beard and mustache, which always seemed more or less unkept, and hair that hung down over his forehead in a gray mass. The poor general, he was neither very happy nor very unhappy, a doubting Thomas, without faith or hope in humanity, and without any particular affection for anybody. "'I'll tell you how it is with these small councils, Mr. Cowperwood,' observed Van Sickle sagely, after the preliminaries of the first interview had been dispensed with. "'They are worse than the city council, almost, and that's about as bad as it can be.' You can't do anything without money where these little fellows are concerned. 
I don't like to be too hard on men, but these fellows... He shook his head. I understand, commented Cowperwood. They're not very pleasing, even after you make all allowances. Most of them, went on the general, won't stay put when you think you have them. They sell out. They're just as apt as not to run to this North Side Gas Company and tell them all about the whole thing before you get well underway. Then you have to pay them more money. Rival bills will be introduced and all that. The old general pulled a long face. Still, there are one or two of them that are all right, he added, if you can once get them interested. Mr. Dunaway and Mr. Garrick. I'm not so much concerned with how it has to be done, General, suggested Cowperwood amiably, but I want to be sure that it will be done quickly and quietly. I don't want to be bothered with details. Can it be done without too much publicity? And about what do you think it is going to cost? Well, that's pretty hard to say until I look into the matter, said the General thoughtfully. It might cost only four, and it might cost all of forty thousand dollars, even more. I can't tell. I'd like to take a little time and look into it. The old gentleman was wondering how much Cowperwood was prepared to spend. Well, we won't bother about that now. I'm willing to be as liberal as necessary. I've sent for Mr. Sippins, the president of the Lakeview Gas and Fuel Company, and he'll be here in a little while. You will want to work with him as closely as you can. The energetic Sippins came after a few moments, and he and Van Sickle after being instructed to be mutually helpful and to keep Cowperwood's name out of all matters relating to this work, departed together. They were an odd pair, the dusty old general, phlegmatic, disillusioned, useful, but not inclined to feel so, and the smart chipper Sippins, determined to wreck a kind of poetic vengeance on his old-time enemy, the South Side Gas Company, via this seemingly remote North Side conspiracy. In ten minutes they were hand in glove, the general describing to Sippins the penurious and unscrupulous brand of Councilman Dunaway's politics, and the friendly but expensive character of Jacob Garrick. Such is life. In the organization of the Hyde Park Company, Cowperwood, because he never cared to put all his eggs in one basket, decided to secure a second lawyer and a second dummy president, although he proposed to keep DeSoto Sippins as general practical adviser for all three or four companies. He was thinking this matter over when there appeared on the scene a very much younger man than the old general, one Kent Barrows McKibben, the only son of ex-Judge Marshal Scammon McKibben of the State Supreme Court. Kent McKibben was thirty-three years old, tall, athletic, and after a fashion, handsome. He was not at all vague intellectually that is, in the matter of the conduct of his business, but dandified and at times remote. He had an office in one of the best blocks in Dearborn Street, which he reached in a reserved, speculative mood every morning at nine, unless something important called him downtown earlier. It so happened that he had drawn up deeds and agreements for the real estate company that sold Cowperwood his lots at 37th Street and Michigan Avenue, and when they were ready, he journeyed to the latter's office to ask if there were any additional details which Cowperwood might want to have taken into consideration. When he was ushered in, Cowperwood turned to him his keen, analytical eyes and saw at once a personality he liked. McKibben 
was just remote and artistic enough to suit him. He liked his clothes, his agnostic unreadableness, his social air. McKibben, on his part, caught the significance of the superior financial atmosphere at once. He noted Cowperwood's light brown suit, picked out with strands of red, his maroon tie, and small cameo cufflinks. His desk, glass-covered, looked clean and official. The woodwork of the rooms was all cherry, hand-rubbed and oiled. The pictures interesting, steel engravings of American life, appropriately framed. The typewriter, at that time just introduced, was in evidence, and the stock ticker, also new, was ticking volubly the prices current. The secretary who waited on Cowperwood was a young Polish girl named Antoinette Nowak. Reserved, seemingly astute, dark, and very attractive. "'What sort of business is it you handle, Mr. McKibben?' asked Cowperwood, quite casually, in the course of the conversation. And after listening to McKibben's explanation, he added idly, "'You might come and see me sometime next week. It is just possible that I may have something in your line.' In another man, McKibben would have resented this remote suggestion of future aid. Now, instead, he was intensely pleased. The man before him gripped his imagination. His remote intellectuality relaxed. When he came again and Cowperwood indicated the nature of the work he might wish to have done, McKibben rose to the bait like a fish to a fly. "'I wish you would let me undertake that, Mr. Cowperwood,' he said quite eagerly. It's something I've never done, but I'm satisfied I can do it. I live out in Hyde Park and know most of the councilmen. I can bring considerable influence to bear for you. Cowperwood smiled pleasantly. So a second company, officered by dummies of McKibben's selection, was organized. DeSoto Sippens, without old General Van Sickle's knowledge, was taken in as practical advisor. An application for a franchise was drawn up and Kent Barrows McKibben began silent, polite work on the south side, coming into the confidence by degrees of the various councilmen. There was still a third lawyer, Burton Stimson, the youngest but assuredly not the least able of the three, a pale, dark-haired, Romeoish youth with burning eyes who Cowperwood had encountered doing some little work for Laughlin and who was engaged to work on the west side with old Laughlin as ostensible organizer and the sprightly DeSoto Sippens as practical advisor. Stimson was no mooning Romeo, however, but an eager, incisive soul, born very poor, eager to advance himself. Cowperwood detected that pliability of intellect which, while it might spell disaster to some, spelled success for him. He wanted the intellectual servants. He was willing to pay them handsomely, to keep them busy, to treat them with almost princely courtesy, but he must have the utmost loyalty. Stimson, while maintaining his calm and reserve, could have kissed the archepiscopal hand. Such is the subtlety of contact. Behold, then, at once on the north side, the south side, the west side, dark goings to and fro, and walking up and down in the earth. In Lakeview, old General Van Sickle, and DeSoto Sippens, conferring with shrewd councilman Dunaway, druggist, and with Jacob, Gerecht, ward boss, and wholesale butcher, both of whom were agreeable but exacting, holding pleasant back room and drugstore confabs, 
with almost tabulated details of rewards and benefits. In Hyde Park, Mr. Kent Barrows McKibben, smug and well-dressed, a Chesterfield among lawyers, and with him one J.J. Bergdahl, a notable hireling, long-haired and dusty, ostensibly president of the Hyde Park Gas and Fuel Company, conferring with Councilman Alfred B. Davis, manufacturer of Willow and Rattan Ware, and Mr. Patrick Gilgan, saloon-keeper, arranging a prospective distribution of shares, offering certain cash considerations, lots, favors, and the like. Observe also, in the village of Douglas and West Park on the west side, just over the city line, the angular, humorous Peter Laughlin and Burton Stimson arranging a similar deal or deals. The enemy, the city gas companies, being divided into three factions, were in no way prepared for what was now coming. When the news finally leaked out that applications for franchises had been made to the several corporate village bodies, each old company suspected the other of invasion, treachery, robbery. Pettifogging lawyers were sent, one by each company, to the village council in each particular territory involved. But no one of the companies had, as yet, the slightest idea who was back of it all or the general plan of operations. Before any one of them could reasonably protest, before it could decide that it was willing to pay a very great deal to have the suburb adjacent to its particular territory left free, before it could organize a legal fight, councilmanic ordinances were introduced, giving the applying company what it sought, and after a single reading in each case, and one open hearing, as the law compelled, they were almost unanimously passed. There were loud cries of dismay from minor suburban papers, which had almost been forgotten in the arrangements of rewards. The large city newspapers cared little at first. Seeing these were outlying districts, they merely made the comment that the villages were beginning well, following in the steps of the city council in its distinguished career of crime. Cowperwood smiled as he saw in the morning papers the announcement of the passage of each ordinance granting him a franchise. He listened with comfort thereafter on many a day to accounts by Laughlin, Sippins, McKibben, and Van Sickle of overtures made to buy them out or to take over their franchises. He worked on plans with Sippins, looking to the actual introduction of gas plants. There were bond issues now to float, stocks to be marketed, contracts for supplies to be awarded, actual reservoirs and tanks to be built, and pipes to be laid. A pumped-up public opposition had to be smoothed over. In all this, DeSoto Sippins proved the trump. With Van Sickle, McKibben, and Stimson as his advisors in different sections of the city, he would present tabuloid propositions to Cowperwood, to which the latter had merely to bow his head in assent or say no. Then DeSoto would buy, build, and excavate. Cowperwood was so pleased that he was determined to keep DeSoto with him permanently. DeSoto was pleased to think that he was being given a chance to pay up old scores and to do large things. He was really grateful. "'We're not through with those sharpers,' he declared to Cowperwood triumphantly one day. "'They'll fight us with suits. They may join hands later. They blew up my gas plant. They may blow up ours.' "'Let em blow,' said Cowperwood. "'We can blow, too, and sue also. I like lawsuits. We'll tie them up so that they'll beg for quarter.' His eyes twinkled cheerfully. 
End of chapter 8